Thanks, Jeff. Uh, so good morning. It's good to be together again, even though it's in this strange format. My name is Drew Bennett, one of the pastors here at Redeemer City Church, and we're so glad that you are joining with us this morning. Are you tired? Are you weary? Do you feel faint-hearted? I think a lot of us probably, if we were honest, would say that's where we find ourselves. It's where I find myself and have for uh, the last bit of time. I'm not really one to watch the news, uh, but with everything going on, I've been tuning in more. But most of it I've found is bad news. And we're digitally connected to every piece of bad news in ways that people in society never have been before. And so it can become so overwhelming so quickly. And it's really the reason we're all so anxious, which is just as big a problem as the virus that we're facing and battling itself. And so I don't know about you, but I come to this morning ready for some good news. Are you ready for some good news? Well, that's exactly what Christianity is, good news, gospel. Now, I don't have any advice. I'm not here to finger wag and moralize and tell you how to live your life. But I do have some good news about God and what he has done and what he is doing to rescue us from the real threat we're facing, which isn't coronavirus or financial collapse or any of the other things you see on the news. The real danger is our pride and self-reliance that have alienated us from God and deceived us into believing that if there is something wrong with God or otherwise, that it's our doing that is the thing that sorts it out. We call it religion, and it's a hellish doctrine. But you see, Christianity is gospel, not religion. It's something completely other than. And the gospel says that the solution to what's wrong between God and man is God's doing, not man's doing. Christianity is good news. And the good news of Christianity is Jesus Christ, plain and simple. The gospel is Jesus, his obedient life before God, his death upon the cross for our sins, his resurrection on the third day, his ascension into heaven, his spirit loose in the world, and his coming back again one day to, as judge to make all things new. That is our gospel. And so, have you become weary? Have you become faint-hearted over these days, over these weeks? Look to Jesus. That's what the Bible says. That's the Bible's clear advice from Hebrews chapter 12. That this trial we're in is proving to be a marathon and not a sprint. And so the way you run with endurance and have the strength that you need to get to the finish line is this. Fix your eyes on Jesus and consider him. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. It's what we're going to do in the weeks ahead. I bring you good news of great joy even in the time of coronavirus shut-ins. Jesus Christ. And so today we want to look at uh, the text that we have in front of us from Luke chapter 3 and Luke chapter 4. Today we want to talk about the good news of his obedient life from those two scenes there, the scene of his baptism in Luke 3 and his temptation in Luke chapter 4. Now these two scenes are connected in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They go together for theological reasons, as we'll see in just a minute. But first, uh, let's read. And so if you want to follow along with me, 
It's there in your worship folder, which is in the link provided for you. It's also going to be on the screen behind me as I read, or you can grab a Bible from Luke chapter 3, and then again Luke chapter 4, and then we're going to read just the reflection in Hebrews chapter 5 that the writer of the Hebrews provides. So let's begin in Luke chapter 3. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with with you I am well pleased. And then in chapter 4, and then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, where he was baptized, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written... Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are indeed the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they shall bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him the third time. And it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And then the writer of Hebrews commenting, I think, on much of this, said this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is God's word. And so the good news that I bring to you this morning is very simple. We're going to try to make it simple in the days, in the weeks to come. And here's the simple, pure, straightforward gospel good news from these texts. It's this. To save us from our sins, Jesus became like us so that if we believe in him, we can become like him in his obedience. To save us from our sins, Jesus Christ became like us. So that if we believe in him, we can become like him in his obedience. Jesus Christ, God, became man, born under law, to live the obedient life required of all of us to make us right with God so that in believing in him we might find abundant life. Just two things. We're going to take both parts of that declaration of good news. The first part, Jesus became like us and see why it is that's so. Secondly, He became like us so that we might become like him and how it is that we can become like him in his obedience because this passage speaks about both of these things. And so let's walk through uh, these texts together very quickly this morning. First, the first bit of good news is that to save us from our sins, Jesus Christ became like us. John Stott has famously said, sin is man substituting himself for God. Salvation is God substituting himself for man. The text is pressing this issue, if you look with me. In between the baptism and the temptation, 
the part of Luke 3 we didn't read, which is why it would be helpful for you to have a Bible here, you'll notice there's a genealogy there. Now, Matthew also has a genealogy in his gospel, and we typically skip over those parts when we read, but they are really important. Matthew's genealogy begins with Abraham because the point he's trying to make is that Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. He's the son of Abraham that the Old Testament looked for. But here in Luke, Luke does something very different. Luke goes all the way back to Adam, the first man, because he's making a different theological point. For Luke, it's important for us to know that Jesus is the second Adam. He is the true man. Now, the genealogy is the explanation of this baptism scene because it needs to be explained. Elsewhere, we're told that John was baptizing for the forgiveness of sins, but the Hebrews passage we read is clear that Jesus, though he suffered temptations as we do, yet he did so without ever falling into sin. And so, if he did not need to be forgiven, then why was he there to be baptized by John? Well, John has the same question that we do. It's actually in Matthew's gospel that we find the answer. John, with supernatural intuition, he sees the problem too. He says to Jesus, look, you don't need to be baptized by me. You don't need me to baptize you, but I need to be baptized by you. You don't need me to baptize. You're the one that should be baptizing. But Jesus insists because as he says there to John and Matthew, he says it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Now let me translate. Here's what Jesus means. He says, I have come to become like you so that I can save you. And I have to go through all that you go through, but succeed where you have failed so that I can make you right. Now the baptism in chapter 3 and the temptation 40 days in the wilderness in chapter 4, these two scenes mirror Israel's Red Sea crossing and the 40 years they spent in the wilderness. And so Jesus Christ has come into the world And this is why God himself has come. He came to live the life we should have lived, to make us right with God. He came to become like us, to become us, you might say, in order to save us. Good news, of course, presumes bad news. And the bad news is that we have all sinned, that we are without righteousness, that we're on a collision course with the wrath of God because of our sins. We're not right with God, which means we're not right as Hugo Cabret, the boy who lived in London, in the London trans, train station, would say, this boy who spent all of his time fixing broken clocks and other machines because it made him so sad that they couldn't do what they were meant to do. And then he wondered if it was the same with people, if it was true of people too, that if you lose your purpose, it's like you're broken, he said. And a person who cannot, a person cannot be right if they are not right with God. We're broken. Because we've lost our original purpose to live in the presence of God. And so the solution then to this wrongness, we wrongly assume, is our rightness. But what the Bible teaches is there's no such thing. Even your rightness is wrong. It's filthy rags, Isaiah says. And that's why Jesus had to come. Because the solution to sin, which is the big problem that mankind is facing, is not Our own rightness, the solution to sin, is a stand-in, a mediator, someone to do it for us, someone to do it as us. And so Jesus came and became like us to fulfill righteousness, he tells John, in his obedience. Now let's look at the Hebrews text again 
as the writer of Hebrews reflects on this, he says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who was in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. And therefore, let us with confidence draw near to God. Now, what do we learn from those two verses? Well, it says there that Jesus was tempted in the same way as we are. He was tempted to lust and to be greedy. He was tempted to be sinfully anxious. He was tempted with spiritual dullness, just like us. And yet, unlike us, he never gave in. Temptation never conceived in his heart and gave birth to sin, to use language from uh, the letter of James. He was tempted with lust and with greed, but he chose love instead every time. He was tempted to sinful anxiety, but he kept faith. He was tempted to spiritual dullness, but he shook it off. And he kept his zeal and his love for God white hot with every breath. He lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father. And here's why that's good news for you and me. When Adam, the first man, sinned at the beginning, he did not act for himself alone. He represented the whole human race. We are counted as sinners along with him. But in his obedient life, here's the good news of Christianity. Jesus Christ did not act for himself alone either. He represented all who have faith in him. So if you believe, you're counted righteous along with him. His record of perfect righteousness is yours. He has worked righteousness for you and given it to you as a gift. And now it says there in Hebrews chapter 4, it's almost too amazing to be believed. It says God is compassionate towards you even when you're at your very worst. That's what it says. That's the good news, that God sympathizes, that he suffers with you in your suffering. That's what that word means. And isn't it an amazing thought? I mean, lots of scary stuff is happening in the world today. How do you face it? You face it by knowing and by resting your heart on the good news, by knowing that God is for you, even in the middle of it, no matter what. And that's the good news. Jesus' obedient life has repaired our broken relationship with God. And if you trust in his righteousness and not your own, then God is for you. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Bring on tribulation, distress, danger, coronavirus, even death. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, the second part, the other part, though, there's another part. I'm not even done. That's not even the best part yet. There's another part of the good news. And the other part of the good news is, is that if we believe in him, the one who became like us to save us from our sins, if we believe in him, then we can actually become like him in his obedience. Or let me say it another way. If you believe like Jesus, you will have the same spiritual power to obey like him. You see, Jesus lived, I'm going to put it this way. Jesus lived from Luke 30. Excuse me, Luke 3.22, not from Luke 4.3. He lived from Luke 3.22, not from Luke 4.3. And he made it possible for you to live from Luke 3.22 instead of Luke 4.3 as well. Let me show you how this works in this text. Satan, you know, runs the same plays over and over again. It's like playing a game of Madden with your friends and you find something that works and you just keep going back to the same play over and over again because they can't stop it. That's what, how Satan works in our lives too, if you remember the very first temptation in Eden, Satan, Satan created doubt in Adam and Eve about God's heart. 
he does the same thing to Jesus. Here, look closely at chapter 4, verse 3. Do you see how he addresses him there? He says, if you are indeed the Son of God. And then again in verse 9, if you are God's Son. In other words, are you really God's Son? Are you sure, Jesus, about this relationship you claim to have with God as Father? He's casting doubt. He's playing on the doubt that Jesus must have felt, that we all feel at our darkest moments about whether or not we really can rely upon God's love or not. Now contrast that all the way back in chapter 3, verse 22. There, a voice from heaven comes, and Jesus is given a divine endorsement. The heavens were open, we're told. The Spirit came down, the Spirit descends, and the voice speaks. And here's what it says. You are my beloved Son. With you, I'm well pleased. And this is different from Matthew. It's interesting. In Matthew, the voice came and it addressed the crowd. But here, this is a personal word just for Jesus. Because it's what he needed to hear. These were the words that propelled him into the wilderness to do battle with the enemy and to triumph. You are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. So the question in the temptation was, would Jesus live from the authority of God's word given to him there? You are my son. Or the uncertainty of Satan's lies. If, you know, if you are, are you sure? If, are you sure you have the title of son? Are you sure that you're God's son? And this is the play that Satan has been running from the very beginning. And it works every single time on you and me. But it didn't work on Jesus. He believed God's voice against the deceit of the enemy. And believing, he passed the test. So that if you believe in him, the words of the Father to Jesus are your words too. Isn't that great news? The words the voice brought into Jesus' heart are the words that linger over your life as well. Let me say them to you. God would say, you are mine. I love you. I'm so pleased. Jesus' life of perfect obedience to the Father has won those words for you. No matter how imperfect or incomplete your own obedience might be, that's the verdict over the life of every person who puts their faith in Jesus. And if you believe like him, in other words, if you live from Luke 3.22, not Luke 4.3 and 4.9, you will have the same spiritual power to obey like he did. And so let's finish there. Looking at the temptation in just a little more detail as we come to a close, I read just this week an author who said so simply about these verses this, Satan consistently tried to separate Jesus from the Father. So simple, yet so profound, because that's where every sin starts. Every sin starts with Satan driving a wedge in between us and the Father, putting doubts in our mind about the Father's love. And so the key to obedience then is to refuse to do life apart from God. And Satan tries from three different angles to separate Jesus from the Father here. If you notice, he first tempts him to seek provision apart from God. That's verse 3. He says, command these stones to become bread. When that doesn't work, secondly, he tempts Jesus to seek glory apart from God. I will give you all of this authority and glory if you will worship me. It will all be yours, he says, verses 5 through 7. And when that doesn't work, thirdly, he tempts Jesus to seek guidance apart from God. Verses 9 and 10, throw yourself down from this temple. God will save you. And so all sin starts in one of those three. 
This is verse 13, every temptation. It says when Satan had finished every temptation, every temptation is encapsulated in these three. I can take care of myself. I don't need God to provide for me. The way of happiness is freedom from my maker. I can have glory without suffering. I don't need to rest my heart in God's love for me. The way of fulfillment is to make a name for myself in the world. Or thirdly, I can decide for myself how life should go. I don't need God to direct my decision making and guide me because the way of wisdom is to question my maker and put him to the test. Provision apart from God, glory apart from God, guidance apart from God. The Spirit sent Jesus into the wilderness because the wilderness weans you from these toxic unrealities. That's what we talked about last week. And this is the opportunity of the wilderness that we are currently going through to learn instead to trust in God's provision in his timing. Instead of seeking to make bread for ourselves. Look what Jesus, how Jesus answers that first temptation, verse 4. Man does not live by bread alone. In other words, no provision without God will ever be enough. Jesus knows that, but do you? That no provision without God will ever be enough, but if you have God, you have all you need. But secondly, to answer the second temptation, by resting your heart in God's love. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only, Jesus says in verse 8. That's how he answers that. And, and you see this else, elsewhere in the scripture, in John 5, 44, in John 12, 43, in Romans 2, 29. You can look those up later. But in all of those places, we see that there is a glory and a praise that comes from God. And that is what you've been made for. Not the praise and glory that comes from making it in the world or the applause, the approval of others. But then thirdly, to learn to seek God. God's guidance before you act and not after. The third temptation is answered by the quote from Deuteronomy that we read earlier. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And testing God is a big deal. It comes up over and over again in the Bible. Paul Miller says that you test God when you act and then trust God. You make decisions apart from his guidance and then demand that he come through on the decisions that you've made without him. And when he doesn't, then you hold a grudge against him. Now be careful of this. It's a big deal. Be careful, especially in a time like the one we're going through right now. Be careful of these three things. And know that if the design of Satan was to separate Jesus and to separate you from God, to drive a wedge between God's heart and your heart, know then that the power for obedience is to know with certainty, without a shadow of doubt, that God does indeed love you. To know that you have a high priest in Jesus Christ, who is compassionate toward your sins and weaknesses and to be constantly coming boldly before him because you're confident in your standing with God and you're assured that you can go to him to get the help you need. Jesus is all you need. Can I say it again? Jesus is all you need, but you will not know that he's all you need until he's all you have. And that, quite honestly, is the lesson of the wilderness. And... That's the opportunity that God is so graciously bringing into our lives in these days. Isn't he great? The wilderness, beloved, can be a hard place. But it is this place of spiritual renewal. In the Bible, it's where people go to meet with God. Whenever somebody wants to meet with God, they go into the wilderness. And so if God has brought a wilderness into our lives, it must mean that he wants to meet with us. So don't be afraid of this wilderness, it means God's up to something. 
Don't grow weary or faint-hearted. Look to Jesus. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. His obedient life is the assurance, no matter how dark the times get, that God's love can be a safe haven, a fortress, a rock, a protection for you. There's an old hymn by Joseph Hart, who's one of my favorite hymn writers, that helps you in a time like this to rightly know the battleground you're fighting on and to rightly put your faith and, and know where ultimately the victory comes from. And so I just want to finish with these words, and I hope they encourage you as they encourage me. He's reflecting on this passage. He says this, If thou art the Son of God, oh, what an if was there. <laughs> these stones here, speak them into food and make thy sonship clear. And then he pulls back and he says, View that amazing scene, say, could the tempter try? To shake a tree so sound, so green, good God, defend the dry. That impious if he thus, at God incarnate through, no wonder if he cast at us and make us feel it too. But here's our point of rest. Though hard the battle seem, our captain stood the fiery test, and we shall stand through him. Amen? Let's pray. Would you pray? Father, what great news for us this morning. The news of Jesus' obedient life, winning for us the righteousness that we need to stand before you confidently, even as things start to, to go sideways in our lives, even as the darkness and the clouds come, even as uh, the places that were, were watery start to dry up, even as we have to wait and stare at the ceiling and and um, just about lose our minds for, for boredom or for a lack of being able to go out and do the things we're used to, even, even when the mountains start to be removed and the earth starts to quake, there is one sure footing, and it's the good news of the gospel of your great love for us in Jesus Christ. And the way that his obedient life has won for us the affection of your heart. And so the key for us in the days to come is to, is to not allow Satan to drive a wedge between us and you, but instead to stay rooted and grounded in the great love that you have for us. And so would you help? Help us. Jesus, we know that you have won for us that very thing. And so come in these days and cause us to marvel more and more at the great work that you've accomplished for us and to rest in that great work. And to hold on to that good news in a world where there is so much bad news. Day after day, it seems. Moment by moment, it seems. And yet we are a people. We are a gospel people. And so help us to rest our hearts in it and then to declare everywhere we go the good news of Jesus Christ. That he might gain glory in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, that's great. So listen to Hebrews chapter 12 again. This will be our prayer to you, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising his shame, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Consider him that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. That is the work before us in the coming days, to consider him. Uh, and if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, then these words are your words. They're won for you by his obedient life the righteousness that he has won and given to you as a gift so that now before the Father, you can have every confidence of the Father's love, the Father being for you. And that's what these words mean. And so receive this benediction uh, until we meet again. May the Lord bless you and keep you. 
May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. Go in his peace.